Hi, I'm Dylan and I was raised white. But when I was 18, I found out I'm actually mixed race and no one was more shocked than me. Or maybe I was the only one who was shocked. I don't know. But I do know that racism is alive and well, and this is something I've experienced throughout my adult life from both sides. White people think I'm not white enough, and black people think I'm not black enough. I just can't win. Anyway, since finding out my background, I've spent a lot of time figuring out who I am and what it means to be a person of color. I was just someone who thought he was nicely tanned or a bit exotic, so how am I supposed to fully embrace my blackness, having never experienced that culture or upbringing? Am I a fraud? How do I properly acknowledge this side of me? Well, by embracing who I am and learning the history of the men and women who came before me. Even though so much of the past has been whitewashed and erased from the books, there's still so much I've yet to learn. Now, I know y'all also need to learn some history and facts in light of what is happening in the world today, and this is not the time for some white person to educate you, so I invite you to learn along with me, and hopefully that will be a little bit less awkward. Each week, I'll talk about a topic, an event, or a person to help you get insight on the history of slavery, of emancipation, of confederacy, and this whole fight that has been happening for over 400 years. Pull up a chair. Sit back and learn about racism with and from someone who was never black enough. I Am Not Your Negro is a documentary narrated by Samuel L. Jackson and inspired by the unfinished writings of James Arthur Baldwin. I'm terrified at the moral apathy, the death of the heart, which is happening in my country. These people have deluded themselves for so long that they really don't think I'm human. I had basis on their conduct, not on what they say. And this means that they have become, in themselves, moral monsters. I Am Not Your Negro won a BAFTA award and was nominated for an Oscar award as well. In the 1970s, Baldwin set out to write a book called Remember This House, following the lives of his three friends, Malcolm X, Medgar Evers, and Martin Luther King Jr., all of whom were assassinated within five years of each other. However, this manuscript only had 30 pages and was never finished. Let's talk a bit about James Baldwin and his work. James Baldwin was a writer, poet, playwright, and activist born in 1924 in Harlem, New York City. After his birth, his mom met and married a preacher with whom she had eight more children. Despite his stepfather being a man of the church, he treated James very differently from his own children, which drove James to spend most of his time alone or in libraries. His love of writing started early, and he had his first article published at the age of 13 in his school's newspaper. Growing up in Harlem was difficult for such a gifted mind, and James is quoted saying, I knew I was black, of course, but I also knew I was smart. I didn't know how I would use my mind, or even if I could, but that was the only thing I had to use. He later became the editor of both his school's paper in junior high and high school. He went on to work many side jobs while being mentored by the painter Beaufort Delaney. It was under this apprenticeship that James realized that, as a black man, he could be a true artist. He wrote book reviews, articles, and short stories, some of which appeared in the likes of Harper's Magazine and were included in Notes of a Native Son, which was his first essay collection published in 1955. He was also close friends and roommates with actor Marlon Brando. Realizing that he was gay, which is something that is barely mentioned in the film, he moved to France at the age of 24 where he spent most of his adult life. 
He eventually settled in St. Paul de Vence at a house where many of his artist friends and musician friends would visit him, such as the painter Beaufort, Ray Charles, Nina Simone, Josephine Baker, and Miles Davis, for whom he wrote many songs. In 1957, he was so moved by a photograph that he returned to the United States. The photo was of a 15-year-old black student named Dorothy Counts who was bravely walking through a mob of white people as she attempted to go to school. He said, It made me furious. It filled me with both hatred and pity, and it made me ashamed. Some one of us should have been there with her. You see, this is when integration was being introduced into the southern states, and it wasn't welcomed or appreciated. This is where the documentary takes off, as James subsequently went to interview people in North Carolina, which is where he met Martin Luther King Jr. This was a time when integration was slowly being introduced into the southern states, and it was not being welcomed or appreciated. There's even a clip of a woman who was saying that God can forgive murder and adultery, but not integration. And I just think that this was someone's daughter, someone's mother. This is someone who believed this. She shared this and taught this to future generations who became our mothers and our daughters. It never ceases to amaze me. His many essays led him to join CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, and thus travel the country giving lectures on racism. The many clips of his lectures and interviews show such a calm presence and articulate speaker. He never raises his voice, although he'd have been justified if he did. He was once quoted saying, To be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time, so that the first problem is how to control that rage so it won't destroy you. He was soon recognized for his eloquent writing and even appeared on the cover of Time magazine in 1963. The director goes on to show some old-time advertisements for cocoa, boots, Pap's Blue Ribbon beer, coffee, and even one with a black maid doing dishes, saying, I sure got a good job now. James writes of how he was taken under the wing of a white teacher as a 10-year-old boy, and how, having this teacher so young, he never developed hatred for white people. It only made him realize that white people didn't act the way they did because they were white, but for some other reason. This teacher really helped develop him and even brought him out to expose him to the theater. He mentions how this white teacher, probably because of her willingness to teach and care for children of color, was treated like a black person herself. Maybe even this exposure to theater and art gave James a unique outlook on the world. I think he was really susceptible to the cinematic portrayal of white people as heroes and black people as subservient casualties. He once said, I suspect that all these stories are designed to reassure us that no crime was committed. We'd made a legend out of a massacre. Leaving aside rape or murder, leaving aside the bloody catalog of oppression, which we are in one way too familiar with already, what this does to the subjugated, the most private, the most serious thing this does to the subjugated, is to destroy his sense of reality. It destroys, for example, his, uh, his father's authority over him. His father can no longer tell him anything because the past has disappeared. And his father has no power in the world. This means, in the case of an American Negro, born in that glittering republic, and in the moment you are born, since you don't know any better, every stick and stone and every face is white. And since you have not yet seen a mirror, you suppose that you are too. It comes as a great shock around the age of five or six or seven. 
to discover that the flag to which you have pledged allegiance, along with everybody else, has not pledged allegiance to you. It comes as a great shock to discover that Gary Cooper killing off the Indians when you were rooting for Gary Cooper, that the Indians were you. It comes as a great shock to discover that the country, which is your birthplace, and to which you owe your life and your identity, has not in its whole system of reality evolved any place for you. <laughs> the director starts integrating bits and pieces from James's book called The Devil Finds Work, which is about motion pictures. James remarked how, as a child, he was unable to find a man similar to his father in any movie, aside from a crying prisoner, which is quite the statement on movies made in the early 1900s. There's a real dichotomy represented in the documentary with the visual of cinema. One minute there's a joyful scene of white people dancing in the pajama game, and the next minute showing black people being brutalized by police. The lack of representation of black people, while it's still an issue today, is very blatant as shown in clips from early films like Dance Fools Dance, Imitation of Life, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. It really just shows how Hollywood perpetuated stereotypes of black people being feared and subservient while white people represented innocent victims. The film goes on to point out the massive juxtaposition between what America seemingly represents and what it actually presents. America is always described as the land of the free and the home of the brave, but that only applies if you're white and born in America. Otherwise, no one has time for you or your constitutional rights. The U.S. is a country where brown citizens pay taxes and salaries to people meant to protect them, but who unjustly beat, arrest, and murder them instead. This is the direction the documentary ultimately veers towards. To look around the United States today is enough to make prophets and angels weep. This is not the land of the free. It is only very unwillingly and sporadically the home of the brave. It's amazing yet heartbreaking how much of James Baldwin's text and messages are still hauntingly relevant today, more than 50 years later. Doesn't that show you how little America has changed? Can't you understand why we're so angry? And we've been fighting the whole time. This isn't anything new. Also, similar to his friends Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., and Medgar Evers, James was spied on by the FBI for many years. The FBI was closely monitoring American writers into the early 70s, something that was not even legal. While some files only had 110 pages like Truman Capote or 9 pages like Henry Miller, they had 1,884 pages on James Baldwin. Malcolm X's file was nearly twice as big. He was stalked, harassed, and even censored by the FBI who tapped his phones and even sent spies to follow him to France. This is eerily similar to today's goings-on, while the government is over-policing communities of color and really keeping a watch on the people involved with the Black Lives Matter movement. An FBI transcript said he was clearly depicted as a dangerous individual and could be expected to commit acts inimical to the national defense and safety of the public. Therefore, his name was added to the security index. James ultimately died of stomach cancer in 1987, and the subject of his unfinished manuscript were his three friends that I mentioned earlier, all of whom were murdered. Of them, he said, I want these three lives to bang against and reveal each other, as in truth they did, and use their dreadful journey as a means of instructing the people whom they loved so much, who betrayed them, and for whom they gave their lives. One of my favorite quotes from James Baldwin is, 
Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And I think my most favorite of all is, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. What white people have to do is try to find out in their own hearts why it was necessary to have a nigger in the first place. Because I'm not a nigger. I'm a man. But if you think I'm a nigger, it means you need it. The question you've got to ask yourself, the white population of this country has got to ask itself, north and south, because it's one country, and for a Negro, there's no difference in the north and the south. There's just you know, a difference in the way they, in a way they castrate you. But, that's, but the fact of the castration is the American fact. If I'm not a nigger here, and you invented him, you, the white people, invented him, then you've got to find out why. Thanks for listening and learning something with me today. It's been a treat, to say the least. If you're enjoying the content and the premise, please do me a huge favor and send through a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It just takes a swipe of the finger and it would really mean a lot to me. If a few taps doesn't seem like enough, feel free to check out the Never Black Enough Patreon page where you can not only make a contribution to the production of this podcast, but you'll simultaneously be making a monthly donation to anti-racist organizations like the Black Youth Project, NAACP, or Black Lives Matter. And remember, when going out into the world, make sure you lead with kindness and listen.